you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. How can educators integrate geekiness with accessibility? How important is documenting our learning to the larger educational community? And what exactly is a Craig Jig? Listen in for the lively answers in today's podcast. Hey there, Innovation Nation. You are going to love today's guest. He is a master of fun with technology. A good friend of mine, Tim, told me back in graduate school that we became physicists because physicists have the coolest toys. <laughs> I could not agree more. And physicists have believed this for a very long time. In fact, Carl Gauss, a physics famous pioneer from the early 1800s, said, it is not knowledge, but the act of learning, not possession, but the act of getting there, which grants the greatest enjoyment. Learning is indeed a quest, and even though it may be hard at times, it is most definitely fun. Around here, we call that hard fun, a term we lovingly adopted from the Pepperdine OMET Malt program. Hard fun is a way of life. Life is indeed hard, sometimes very hard but we are dedicated to having fun in the process. Learning without fun causes boredom and has killed many powerful learning opportunities. On the other hand, learning without hard work does not engender a strong feeling of accomplishment or excitement upon completion. By marrying the two, learning experiences become both profound and deeply satisfying, a recipe for educational ecstasy. Perhaps that imagery is a little more powerful than you are ready to hear today, but I'd like to challenge you to think bigger when it comes to the educational experiences you observe and create. We began asking ourselves here at Tabletop Inventing, what was possible to learn in a few short days? And out of that question grew one of the most fun and challenging experiences we've seen in the education of teenagers. We keep talking about the Inventor's Bootcamp experience because we've seen teenagers face almost insurmountable technical challenges time after time and continue to find enjoyment in the over-the-top difficulty level of the experience. Students keep telling us, it was hard, but really fun. You can find out more about Inventor's Bootcamp by visiting inventingzone.com or by clicking on the Inventor's Bootcamp button on the ttinvent.com website. Today's guest is no stranger to hard fun. Josh Berker is an educational technologist with extensive experience. He particularly enjoys making technology invisible as well as extremely accessible, which is a skill many teachers would like to see in their tech department. Josh has honed his skills and become a recognized expert on hard fun. And his new book titled The Invent to Learn Guide to Fun shares his extensive toolbox. My guest today is Josh Berker. Josh creates super accessible projects that are understandable to 
all the individuals in the classrooms that he works with. He creates projects that are what he calls remixable or able to be expanded into other types of projects. And he usually uses items that can be found around the house. Josh, this is a really interesting mix of things. Tell us a little more about how you got into this. Well, I guess it really grows from my interest in trying to combine the elements of both crafting and technology. I grew up around a really crafty mom who was very handy with her hands and sewed and quilted and, you know, was willing to take on teaching me how to use the jigsaw, for example, and and so I could cut out shields. As a kid, I was interested in in knights. So by trying to combine crafting and technology, I think I'm trying to lower the barrier to entry for people who might be reluctant to get their hands dirty with the technology. They might be happy to jump right in when cardboard is the medium with which we're working. I think that you should have done this stuff when I was a kid. (laughs) (laughs) I had a lab under the basement, and I just wanted to build stuff, and Mm -hmm. cardboard was accessible. Right, and I think nowadays we've sort of forgotten what we did do as kids and what worlds we could create with simple items like cardboard. It's really fascinating watching my three-and-a-half-year-old and his imagination because he'll take something as minute as a cloth measuring tape, and that's become his GPS. And by unspooling it through his hands, it's the road that he sees on my phone mounted in the windshield. We can do so much with our imagination, and we forget with the technology that we do have available to us, we forget to to kind of take a step back and use things that require us to use our hands and our imaginations. How did you get into the technology side? So the craft side, you kind of gave us a little bit of background on that. How did you get into the Mm -hmm. technology side? The technology side of things, I got my first computer back in 1983 when my cousin's husband approached my parents and told them, you know, you really ought to think about getting an Apple II. At the time, they owned a children's clothing store, and he envisioned them helping it with inventory and payroll and whatnot. And the truth of the matter is it ended up being something that my brothers and I got to play with and use and learn with. And so I always had an interest in computers, and it really fell off. In high school, after college, my first job out of college, I ended up inheriting a yearbook class, and the person who took care of the Macintoshes on campus left shortly after I started at the school, so I had to kind of recall what I knew about computers and start in on a really technical side of things. And and so for years, I pursued a really technical side of using computers and, and networking and system administration. So I have a strong background in that, but it's trying to kind of marry the geekiness with approachability <laughs> and break down the barriers to entry, as it were. So let me make sure I understood where you went with that. So it sounds like you got into some highly technical stuff. You you mentioned some user management, IT type stuff. Mm -hmm. So did you Mm -hmm. actually become like an IT director at a school and kind of get into the technicality on that side of it? How did that go? What I did is I timed it really wrong and went out into the private sector, kind of at the end of the dot-com boom, and I was a Macintosh consultant. 
the guy who I worked for, we were able to weather the storm because we had some established clients. So for example, for a few years, I managed the Macintoshes at Nintendo of America. And so I got to see kind of the creative side of how the artists there used the computers that I helped keep running. After that, and when I went back into schools, again, it was a technical side of things is how they build the position. But once I got the system up and humming, it was easy enough for me to then create projects that involved humans, as it were. You know, So I started a technology club for students at the elementary school where I was working and really started building that. And that's when I met Debbie is when I decided, okay, you know, I have the technical side down. It's time for me to really start thinking about how this can affect education. And, and I met Debbie when I pursued my master's degree at Pepperdine. Did you just get bored doing the tech stuff and thought, well, maybe I should start working with the kids? Like, how did that – because that's kind of a different way of thinking. Most of the tech guys just don't interact much with the kids. You know, they kind of ignore the kids. Right. So how did right. that transition happen? Well, it had always been there. I mean, I guess, you know, my technical side of things, it had been in conjunction with schools. So when I first started learning about system administration, it was in the context of needing to keep the computers running to produce a yearbook. And, you know, it was needing to keep the computers running so the computer lab would work for the classes to come through. And then it was needing to create a, a system for laptops that there was consistency for the users and backups that were happening. And the technical side of things has always really remained there. And, and I continue to understand technical things. My latest like personal challenge for myself is switching platforms, trying to put together complex tool sets for myself. So I continue to do the technical side of things as frustrating as it can be at times, but I've always done the education side of things as well. It's kind of a weird cross combination of skills. So it sounds like you're the type of technical guy that all of the teachers love, but the freak out the IT department. Well, I have my feet in both departments, fortunately. The teachers enjoy me because it's creative. It's making the technology transparent. It's not emphasizing the technology, but rather using the technology to emphasize the children's creativity. But at the same time, it's also creating systems that, that are reliable and consistent and secure. So it's not like playing one camp against the other. It's having the skills to support both camps. So not being intimately connected on the IT side of a school district uh, in the past, do you have two or three other people that you work with within the school or within the district and you all report to like an IT director somewhere or how does yeah, that work? Yeah, yeah. When I've been in schools, in, in a public school setting, I managed a school building. And so it was nice and that the hardware and the software was across the district the same, but then kind of left to the site as to how far one took it. So everyone at each of the schools had a server and, and they had software to manage the clients and to push software, but I took it a lot farther. So it was scripted and automated and reported. And a lot of what I'm trying to do is make it reliable. And just if I can walk into a situation knowing that we aren't going to trip over the technology because it fails us, then that's more comfortable for me and it's going to promote better learning for everyone. So it sounds like you're that ideal mix 
between the IT world where the teachers just want the technology to work and the teachers where the technologists don't really understand what it is the teachers want. They keep asking for this certain thing and they keep thinking they get it and then the teachers are you know still upset. So you're in the, that unique transition place where, yeah, it's just really hard to kind of – it's hard to find people that live in both of those worlds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So tell us a little bit about some of these cool projects then that you get to do by bringing the technology toward the teacher side. The project that I, I'm most proud of and kind of want to talk about would be a project that was in a non-traditional education setting, if that's all right. Oh, sure. Yeah. So what happened is last June, I was maker in residence at the Westport, Connecticut Library Makerspace. And that meant I got to spend 20 hours over the course of a month just leading impromptu workshops around the makey-makey and programming in Scratch and creating musical instruments out of upcycled materials. It went really well. I think they told me in the end that I had over 200 encounters with people. I had four people, let's see, two elementary school students, homeschooled middle schooler, and an 88-year-old guy come to the final presentation to explain their whole process. So it was very successful. And I met the guy the month after me who was the maker in residence, and he did a whole set Session on unmaking where he'd bring in hardware and I ended up taking apart a table lamp, for example. And so we really hit it off and we decided to run a workshop of our own that we put together a list of people of students with whom we'd worked in the past and who we thought could see a project with the scope that we had in mind through to a completion. And so we sold it to six students and we did a six month project outside of school that met for every other Friday where we taught them how to build automata, which are hand crank mechanisms that produce a series of movements. So that was a great project because it it combined so many different skills that were outside of what you might encounter in a typical classroom because we weren't in a classroom. We were meeting in my partner's workshop and we were learning woodworking skills. We were working with 3D modeling and 3D printing and incorporating 3D printed parts in the automata. And the kids all generated the themes around the six automata that grew in size to being contained in a frame about two feet by four feet tall, two feet wide by four feet tall. And it worked out beautifully. It was hard fun, uh, which I think is always important when you're learning new skills. And we ended up meeting the deadline and being able to exhibit it at the Westport Mini Maker Fair, which, as I understand it, is the at this point the largest mini make fair in the country. That is very cool. And that took, you said, six months? Yeah, that was a six-month effort. <laughs> so that's more of what I'm trying to do at this point is is come up with workshops where we're afforded the luxury of really examining something deeply. I think six months was a bit too deep. And the next workshop I have in mind is going to be a five-session rocketry workshop where we'll, we'll go deep, but it's not going to go on as long. 
Tell me a little bit about how the kids were involved in this uh, automata project. You mentioned a little bit, but. So Joseph and I taught them, we taught them through a series of exercises, how to build automata. And so if we look at the skills that that involved, we started them with cardboard and that involved learning how to accurately measure and mark your measurements. And then from there, we moved to working with wood and again, measuring twice. So we're only cutting once and learning, <laughs> <laughs> learning some clever joinery. This guy, Joseph's like go-to tool is this Craig jig that makes these oh, recessed yeah. Those are amazing. Uh, screw holes. Yeah, you know, and you can like whip together something that's perfectly square, which is nice for a change. I actually used it recently. We have squirrels in my neighborhood and we do a container garden during the summer and the squirrels always get into the containers and we used it to construct a new cage to go around the big container. And I remarked to my wife that using the right techniques and tools results in so fewer swears during a big project like that so <laughs> that is so true <laughs> I would have so to i was able to even take the skills you know to the next level so the kids were involved in in learning these skills so then they could apply the skills and the way that they applied the skills was brainstorming the theme and and the themes that they went with were kind of the visible earth like the earth's surface and also the, the sea and so they constructed in the six automata, we had an automata that was the Earth viewed from the moon. We had a, a starling who flapped its wings and we had a model of, of the Earth in space. And then for the ocean, we had a sperm whale chasing a giant squid and a submarine passing them by. So they developed the whole theme and then cut the lumber, cut the, the aluminum tubing that we used, uh, riveted the parts to the, the tubing. So they were very involved in each step of the process and, and then from conception all the way through the build. And then presenting, they had to face the public and, and explain <laughs> it. And the first thing you find when you bring something you make into the public is the public uses it a lot different than you may have been using it. And so things, <laughs> things start to break, you know, and so it, as the day progressed and things broke that we couldn't mend on site was how do you continue to tell the story around the machinery with the machinery not working correctly? Like, how do you punt? So it was a, a really good process for all of them. So you really, truly are deeply involved, as would be expected from a Pepperdine graduate of the, was it Malt or OMET when you took it? It was OMET back then, yeah. <laughs> so you really are a proponent of that. So the kids were deeply involved. They were doing the brainstorming. They were doing the hands-on learning. And, mm -hmm. and you were doing the hard work of standing off to the side and not monkeying with it too much. Yeah, yeah. And there was certainly work as the project near the deadline for their maker fair and along the way too there's certainly work that as best as you can scaffold it it just yet can't be done and you don't know that until you've worked with the kids for a few months so there was work that joseph and i ended up doing but we were also at the same time able to confidently put a router into a girl's hands and have her help us cut circles and everyone graduated with 10 fingers from from the project so. <laughs> But those are invaluable experiences, and it's, well, rather than telling what I'm sure happened, tell us how the kids felt at the end. Like, what was the result inside of this project for them? 
I think they felt really accomplished. I mean, the size of the automata themselves, in the case of the fourth graders, they were mounted nearly a foot up off the floor. So those things stood nearly as tall as they are. And to build something nearly as tall, if not taller than you are, that's complicated and and is a piece of machinery, that's a lasting project. They're going to remember that, those six months that we worked together for the rest of their life, like I can remember projects that I worked on in my childhood. So they aren't going to go on necessarily to be cabinet makers or 3D designers, but when it comes time in college to build a bookshelf or something, it's not going to collapse on them in the middle of the night, you know. (laughs) So I think they were surprised at how much beyond their years they were capable of working, that given the guidance and the tools and patience that they really were able to accomplish something. And I think a huge part of it is time. Like in any school, you aren't afforded six months to work on one project. There's definitely a a component that we're neglecting in school of time to absorb and to practice and to refine skills. So let me actually ask us a question that's kind of related to your your time question because now I'm curious like have you been doing this long enough to see any of the long-term effects on the students you've worked Yeah, I guess like what's been interesting is seeing some of the students who I worked with back towards the beginning of my career when I was working in a public middle school as a technology specialist. And the way that the kids engaged me in that experience was they really wanted the like the technical knowledge. So it's been interesting because now all of those people are grown-ups, you know, they're out of college. And it's interesting to see how many of them have gone into very technical fields. One of them codes for Google and one codes for Twitter now. So it's cool to see that something that an interest that they had as young middle schoolers that I was able to help them pursue with the guy who's at Twitter. He and I set up our first open BSD box together back when he was in middle school. And the guy with Google, like we did a lot of programming in in an Apple project that was called Coco, that was internet programming for kids, programming by depth. Uh, So it's cool to see that those men have took the lessons that we worked on together when they were kids and built and, and ran with it. It's been cool to see the students with whom I worked in lower school progress up through middle school and upper school to see how their interests and have grown and changed. So I'm going to ask you to draw back to your Pepperdine experience and look at those mm-hmm. look at those students and look at the techniques or the approaches that you took to learning with those students mm-hmm. and pull out a couple of things that teachers or parents should be particularly attentive to that you think make a huge difference in the education of, say, a fourth grader or a fifth or sixth grader? So I think the first really important lesson that I learned um, in my time at Pepperdine and the context for, I guess, a lot of what I'm saying is my Pepperdine action research was around the technology club that I was running at a public elementary school. 
and I'd been running it, I think, at that point for three years, and I didn't have any girls and any autistic students involved. That was the school in the district where the autism spectrum program was. So we had a good concentration of autistic students who were interested in technology, and we had girls who were certainly interested in technology but sure weren't showing up to my club. So it was my responsibility to determine why and what changes could be made. So the lessons that I took to heart during that intense year of hard fun and like learning about children learning, the first lesson is you need to get out of the children's way. The children have a better chance, I think, of learning meaningful and lasting lessons if it's not you who are dictating what they learn. My wife yesterday, who is a public high school English literature teacher, got and she's been teaching for 17 years now. She got the best compliment yet yesterday, and that was from a student who told her, who thanked her for teaching her not what to think, but how to think. And I think getting out of children's way is the best way to allow children to develop their own ways of thinking and their own ways of problem solving. I think another super important lesson that I learned through my Pepperdine Action Research Project was fostering a social space in which the children learn. The reason why I didn't have any girls involved in the technology club, as it turns out, was the projects had just grown to be too technical. And there wasn't any point of conversation, really, around what the boys were kind of trying to do with the club. And so when I swung the club through the action research and decided, okay, the first project we're going to work on is digital photography. And since we don't have enough cameras to put in everyone's hands, we're going to have to collaborate. That allowed for real social discourse to occur. And not all of it was necessarily happy. I was working with elementary school students, you know, but it did allow for the students to socialize, to determine the course that the project would take. It allowed them, in the case of digital photography, it allowed them to determine the aesthetics that mattered to them. So again, it, it plays into getting out of the children's way that if it's not the adult kind of running the show, but it's the adult who's providing the space where the children can meet and exchange ideas and skills and work on projects, then that it's in my estimate, is the environment that's most conducive to learning. And those are, I mean, that that's the advice that I would give to parents is, is provide the opportunities for kids to learn, but don't feel like you need to run the show. I feel that my best lessons, I really ought not to be giving direct instruction for more than two minutes. <laughs> the rest should be children's time. So thank you for taking the time to kind of distill down those very poignant lessons. Let's take a little bit of a left-hand turn and wind down just a little bit. And we always ask two questions uh, here toward the end of the podcast. Mm -hmm. The first one is one that I think that you're in a you're in a fairly unique place to answer because you're both in the educational space and in the technical space. And, and it's this. In the digital world, you know, we, we now have this access to over 600 million websites. And Mm -hmm. We have just oodles of YouTube videos, and you can find just about anything on Wikipedia now. In that environment, what does it mean to be, quote, educated? Like, what does the term educated mean now? Mm -hmm. 
That's a good question. I thought about this question, having seen it before and heard it before. And I think to me, what I believe the most important skill is in in today's modern age is to be the person who's producing the most accurate information to which others are looking to find the answers that they need. And I guess I'll swing this back to that kind of tangent I took with switching platforms. Then come on one platform since 1985 and just become disappointed with the direction it's taking. And and so I'm switching platforms and I'm trying to get a Kinect camera to talk to this Linux laptop so I can start doing some 3D scanning with it. And it's become one of those obsessive like OCD <laughs> tasks for me that, that like a day and a half into it, like I had to slap myself and like walk away and, and be like, these are some dangerously slippery slopes you're, you're on, Berker. But, but, but it illustrates this, this anecdote because through all of this struggle that I've had, like I'm competent around using the Google and, and trying to, to find the information that I need to find. But what the document that's mattered most to me in all of this and the documentation's there and there does seem to be a certain amount of hoodoo involved in making this all work, but the documentation that matters most <laughs> To me, is this woman's lab notebook that's on the internet. And she just took particularly good notes and they ended up on the internet. And so I've stepped back from it and I only allow myself maybe 45 minutes a day to crack at this problem. But she's given me a very good checklist, having exhausted all the other documentation out there that's saying the same thing and it should work. You know, it's still not working, but to be the person who can produce, who can document what you are doing along the way and share that documentation, I think that's the most important skill. We're inundated, as you say, with information, but not all of it's good and not all of it's true. So if you can be a well-educated person who cares enough about knowledge and about what you know that you can accurately document and share it, I think that's the most important skill. Excellent. Well, the last question we ask is the philosophical question. And again, I think you're just in this beautiful place to answer this, and that is what is the purpose of an education? I mean, as you look at your experience in educating kids and also being in the IT world and now seeing some of your students go on, from, from these experiences that you created for them along the way. What is mm-hmm. the purpose of, the, of that education? I think the purpose of a good education is to create in oneself the quest to keep asking questions. So if you're constantly seeking new knowledge instead of just sort of riding the wave that you're comfortable on, I think you're a well-educated person. Wow. <laughs> That's what I see. <laughs> I I completely agree. Yeah. A, a burning question will take you many more places than a short answer. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for distilling it down that clearly. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, as we wrap up here, we always like to give our audience an opportunity to connect with you. What's the best way mm-hmm. for them to find you on the Internet or look you up? 
Okay, so the best way, if you want to try and engage me, would be through Twitter, and that's at Josh J O S H B U R K E R at Josh Berker, and I also have a blog which is joshberker.blogspot.com where I showcase a lot of these projects that I try out in classrooms and in workshops and at home with my three and a half year old. And if you're interested too, I have a book coming out through CMK Press. I believe it launches May 11th, next Monday. It's called the Invent to Learn Guide to Fun, and you can find it on Amazon. And it has 13 fun projects that are totally remixable and get you learning about circuitry and open-ended projects like making music and programming art and all sorts of fun. Excellent. I was hoping you would mention that. <laughs> Debbie said you were coming out with that book and that we love what CMK Press puts out. And this is certainly another home run in our opinion. So well, thank you. we will link that up on the website so that people can link awesome. straight there. And thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us about what's behind the curtain for a good educator. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to allow me to share my ideas. If you've been enjoying the conversations and insights here on the podcast, Share it with a friend. Great ideas demand to be shared. You can also help fellow parents and educators by subscribing to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast in iTunes, leaving a rating, and writing a review. If you use Android, subscribe, leave us a rating, and write a review in Stitcher. Links to subscribe can be found at www.ttinvent.com podcast. Contact us and we'll think through the comments and answer your questions here in the podcast. And be sure to let us know if you'd like a shout-out or to remain anonymous. You can share your comments and questions at www.ttinvent.com podcast or by emailing us at podcast at ttinvent.com. Let's discuss your thoughts and questions. Join us again next time when we will again seek to answer the question, what is the purpose of an education? And as educators, how do we awaken the inventor in each of our students?